I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales, and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at planetford.com. You're listening to Crime Scene Today, where we meet with subject matter experts on issues facing law enforcement, forensic, and crime scene investigations. I'm your host, Dan Zentek. Today we have Brett Ligon, Montgomery County DA, and Donna Berkey, our Felony Division Chief from Montgomery County uh, District Attorney's Office. So thank you all for coming in today. So the first time that I met Brett after he got elected was on an officer-involved shooting. It was also the first time that we had prosecutors come to our scene with us. Uh, to actually be involved in the process. And even though in law enforcement we both have uh, the same goal, which is putting uh, people in jail that have committed crimes, we also have different tasks to do in creating that relationship between law enforcement and the DA's office and learning our different uh, goals that we have, or our different things that we need to come and accomplish. I mean, uh, basically the thought process for most officers is what do we need for the elements of a crime to make an arrest? But we don't think of the process that y'all have to go through uh, once it gets to court. Uh, y'all deal with defense attorneys on a regular basis, the current uh, case law and defenses that are coming up, and those are the things that y'all bring into play by us having that conversation being out there. And that's something that I know that uh, you brought with you along with many things coming from Harris County. Uh, so uh, talk about a little bit of that, about that relationship, some things that you brought to Montgomery County from your experience. Sure. I remember that first call that we were on the scene, and I remember this uh, gray-haired, another gray-haired guy being on the scene. I look across, and it's you. And uh, for those of you who are only uh, listening to this station, you don't actually get to see Dan much. Dan is a very stoic figure, doesn't talk a whole lot, and uh, which surprised me that you would have a radio show because I thought to myself, <laughs> Man, in all the years I've known you, I don't know if you've uh, spoken an entire hour in the 11 or 12 years that I've known you now. But uh, on that particular scene, when we're there, what we're looking for is something unique and something different than what law enforcement is looking for. And just to kind of remind people, uh, the first time that I gave an address to a sheriff's academy and to the police academy talking about the roles of the district attorney's office as opposed to the roles of law enforcement, I used an analogy of World War II. And I said, all right, you know, we have a common enemy or you have a common, uh, common goal. And the common goal, obviously, is to seek justice and make sure that if there's a bad guy, that the bad guy uh, gets prosecuted uh, and you achieve the right result. But it doesn't make us teammates. And I remember there were a lot of uh, people that were offended when I said, I'm not a teammate to the sheriff's department, nor am I a teammate to the police department, but we're our allies in the sense that we have some common borders. And the example I used that started to make more sense to people was the World War II analogy, where the United States and Canada and Britain, they had common goals, but they had to, um, they had to safeguard their own borders. And so the United States' interests in regards to Japan and Germany would have been the same interests, obviously, that, um, that any of the other allies would have had, but they had separate, separate goals and separate borders that they had to safeguard and protect. And the district attorney's office is the same. We are looking for usually the evidence of, um, that would indicate guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. And when an officer, and you know, Dan, in, in your experience, an officer's, the thing that I love about what an officer is able to do, an officer takes a, a narrative that doesn't exist before the officer gets out there. And an officer in the offense report begins the timeline, and they do so in their own head. And they say, all right, this is the moment that my offense report is going to start. And I'm constantly trying to train prosecutors and say, wait a minute, don't sit there and, and chide the officer for the fact that he didn't include something. It's much easier to edit a product if you're a prosecutor and point out what the officer missed in the narrative. But when an officer gets out there, the whole scene is unrolling. And you start your narrative or your offense report with the scene. Do you start with the first witness that you encounter, or do you start it with I, Dan Zentech, employed by the Montgomery County Sheriff's Department, right. right? And so when y'all's narrative is done, typically is when we would take over. Now, in Harris County, as a prosecutor, uh, and then as a, an attorney representing police officers, there's so much evidence that's out there, and it's, it's the fact that when you have crime scene units, their view is a little bit more focused, and it's a sure. little tighter than the defense attorneys and the prosecutors and the judge and the jury. 
And what I found is that you take a step back from what the officer's looking at, that all the evidence is still there. And in uh, a crime scene unit investigator may be looking at a shell casing or two shell casings. Well, sometimes the more dramatic element of that story is not what you see in the picture, but what you don't see in the picture. For example, if there's a large distance between the shell casings and a decedent, well, that may tell an experienced investigator like you that the assailant was standing somewhat of a distance right. from, from the decedent, right? There's some context clues that the picture itself wouldn't show you. So when we came on the scene, we recognized that there were things that we could do to enhance the storytelling portion of it to the jury in more of a visceral uh, sense, whether there are going to be demonstrative aids that an officer may not think has a high evidentiary value, but a prosecutor may, may very well find to be probative. Um, one of a very um, infamous example is the Sheriff's Department executed a search warrant, and it was a child sex case, and the child, while she was being raped, was fixated on a bobblehead doll. I remember that. That was the one in the car. Right? Yes. Yep. Yes. It was fixated on the bobblehead doll. Now, for me, it's cooperative evidence. If when you execute the search warrant, right, so you're looking for all the things that perhaps should be there, but also things that shouldn't be there. And so when law enforcement gets on the scene, the bobblehead doll is there. And there was a disagreement and a discussion about what the value of that bobblehead doll was. Well, for me... As a storyteller, I want to tell the story through the bobblehead doll. The victim is already going to testify. She's young. She's going to be traumatized. On the other hand, if that jury sees a bobblehead doll, well, not only is it cooperative that the uh, young lady is telling the truth, but it also has an emotional impact and an emotional appeal. And part of that is good storytelling. So those are some of the things that we look for when we're out there on the scene. Right, and there, there's a separation. As you said, law enforcement's looking for the evidence. Well, the bobblehead doll, to us, wasn't evidence. is not evidence, right? right. But it wasn't the soiled clothing. It no. wasn't the rape kit. It wasn't even the, uh, the location where the, where the rape had occurred. But something y'all are going to be uh, experiencing in, at trial is that uh, the child uh, basically stated that that's the way she got through it, was staring at that doll right. while this violent act was happening to her. So uh, to have that readily available is impactful uh, on your end, but something that, again, law enforcement just doesn't think of on the front side. You know, the impact that you make. So I teach around the state. I teach to crime scene investigator detective all over the state of Texas. And the common irritation that law enforcement has um, a lot of times with their cases, deals with the DA. It, it has to deal with their... That goes both ways. You know, Our common irritant <laughs> is the investigation by the investigators. Well, and, and no, actually, I'm, a, I'm speaking of something different. I'm speaking about the fact that when they work on their cases, they turn it over, that, uh, and we'll speak of Harris County, it's close to us, whatever, that uh, uh, they do not receive long sentence. They don't receive the punishment. They're back on the street. And I see this... Uh, something that I feel you have accomplished a great deal in Montgomery County, and I believe, um, I believe it's it's a tide when we speak of Chicago and things they're dealing with, and otherwise that when people are allowed back on the streets so quickly, that are we do we really have that many murders, or is it the same person who's doing the same thing, or we have that many robberies, or it's the same person who's being released? And so the example that I always use is we had. Uh, the robbers that were crawling through the McDonald's windows, mm -hmm. right? And uh, they shooting at witnesses leaving and, and just many violent things. They were occurring in Harris County also. And the same people had committed eight robberies there, had gotten deferred adjudication, were back out committing robberies in Montgomery County. Uh, they commit some up here, end up with 60 years in prison. Uh, we see violent crimes go down. Uh, word gets on the street, you don't come to Montgomery County. So these are the conversations we have is that um, the hard work that's put in if it's not followed through with prosecution, then uh, I don't think that crime diminishes, right? I mean, you, you have to have that relationship to make sure you have that tight case that uh, is solid, but uh, it is that relationship that leads to impacting uh, your crime statistics, a safe community uh, by the follow-through, and I think you've done a great job with that Thank and you. a great example here. Um, but one, one thing that does come up, and even here, um, is plea bargains. Mm -hmm. And both of y'all can speak to this. I mean, I think the last statistics that I saw, it was in a criminal justice uh, class or book, was that, and uh, y'all can speak to the accuracy of it, is that about 90% of the cases 
uh, lead to plea bargain of probation where and and that's a huge number to basically say that if we were to take to trial a hundred percent of what y'all receive where we would be on backlog or, or accomplishing the goal right it would be impossible so um, you know, if, if y'all could talk about what is considered on plea bargain, because obviously y'all have to decide. Y'all can't take everything. I mean, there there has to be a process in what goes trial, what doesn't, and those type of things. Uh, Don and I were both, so I know you introduced, introduced her earlier. I just kind of want to restate. Donna Berkey is the Felony Division Chief at the Montgomery County District Attorney's Office. She's been with us for several years now, but I plucked her from Harris County. We have some sh common uh, background in the sense that we were both prosecutors in Harris County, and we can talk about that. Her, obviously, more recent. You can tell by the color of my hair. <laughs> right. uh, I was in Harris County when Johnny Holmes was the elected right. DA. I think Donna probably lived through the next three or four subsequent district attorney's offices. Right, in so Harris I hired County. on under um, Chuck Rosenthal, and then I was there for the series of DAs that followed him. So, And um, in regards to plea bargaining in Harris County, it's probably very similar to Montgomery County. About 1% of all criminal cases actually make it to trial. Can you... Tell me a little bit about the things that you're seeing as a district court chief and as a division chief. How do you prioritize? And why would one case, two, two things, how do you prioritize as a chief? And then secondly, why would there be a disparity in sentencing in a county like Harris County as opposed to Montgomery County from your view? Sure. So um, one of the things that as a district court chief and then now um, running the felony division um, that we're wanting to look at is we want to separate what kind of offender are we looking at? Are we looking at an offender who has violence, um, victims, um, long prison sentences? Are they habitual? Those people are going to be treated differently um, by our office um, as opposed to folks who um, maybe have substance abuse problems. Um, maybe they are committing crimes that are related to substance abuse. It might be a situation where they can be diverted into treatment um, that would help them resolve the problems that they're facing and then hopefully not reoffend. Um, but as you said, the the volume is such that we could not possibly try every case that comes across our desk, and so we're wanting to triage them in a way that um, results in the safest community and the best results. Um, and, and we want our juries to have a voice in those kind of cases where it's a very violent person or it's a very horrific crime or where they've got such a history that it's just time for them to be separated from society. Um, when it comes to Harris County, um, the volume there is just a lot higher, obviously. Um, there's also a lot going on down there with respect to um, judges and um, elected officials that um, has changed the game a lot since I was down there. Um, but I will say that the, the principles were the same um, for the entirety of my prosecution career, which is we want to get these really bad guys locked up and put away and spend our time focusing on them. I like to offer the color commentary. I, I tell people, particularly younger prosecutors and the public that doesn't really know. So I've been doing uh, criminal law my entire career. So we're 22, 23 years in. And the thing that I like about it is, uh, as a detective, you would get up, Dan, and where the scene goes, it could have a, a variety. The suspect could be found. The victim could turn out to be alive and not dead. It could be a missing persons as opposed to whatever. So when you get a call, the outcome is not determined. As a criminal lawyer, though, as a, particularly as a prosecutor, the outcome is determined. I only have three flavors of ice cream, and I've been selling the same three flavors of ice cream for the last 23 years. It's either chocolate, vanilla, or strawberry. Now, what does that look like in criminal law? I can either plead this case, I can dismiss this case, or I can set this case for trial. There are no other dispositions other than those three. So you take the 20-plus municipalities within Montgomery County, the five constables, the sheriff's department, DPS, then you start to layer federal jurisdiction on top of that, and it doesn't matter. I'm going to take every single one of those cases, whether it's in Harris County, and whether there are 22 felony courts and 16 misdemeanor courts or the four district courts we have here and our 16,000 cases, I'm going to reduce all those to one bucket right. of either chocolate, vanilla, or ice cream and as, uh, or strawberry. And as Donna's pointed out, um, when you're only able to try 1%, we are very much in a triage situation. And people think that plea bargain is an ugly word. I happen to think it is a very resourceful word because if you have a, and in a community like this, which is a very safe community, we're going to have about 30 or 40 murders a year. Unfortunately, we're gonna have 200 uh, aggravated sexual assaults involving a child. Right. 
And then on top of that, you're going to have regular sexual assault involving a child. And then you're going to have uh, child pornography, or you're going to have injury to a child, or you're going to have uh, robberies and aggravated robberies and all those types of deals. And all of those are incredibly offensive, and anybody that's a victim of those wants to prioritize that case. And you do prioritize those cases. Now let's talk about one of the statistics that our, our district clerk, um, Melissa Miller, has been discussing recently. We only have a 10% show-up rate for jurors in Montgomery County. You probably didn't know that. I did not, no. So Melissa Miller's office last year sent out 120,000 jury summonses, and they got a 12,000-person response rate. That's 10%. Now, every criminal jury that we're going to pull, typically on the felony side, we're going to bring in 80 jurors, and we're going to reduce that down to a dozen plus a couple of alternates. Now, why? Because when you're trying to put somebody in prison for a long time, people have strong feelings about it. Sometimes people have been victims. Sometimes they're just not good jurors or because they have an infirmity that allows them to get out of jury service. So in reality, you'll pull a panel of 80 or 85 unless it's a hotly contested issue. If it's a hot-button topic like marijuana possession or if it involves something that stirs the imagination, you may pull two panels. You may bring in 150 people. And, of course, you're going through your jurors at a rapid pace. We're going to try 70 felonies this year and probably the same or more misdemeanors. So the criminal justice system by itself is going to burn through about 9,000 of those jurors. That leaves 3,000 for all the civil and all the probate. So whether they're taking your money or your kid, they only have about 3,000 to 3,500 jurors. So now when people talk about plea bargains, rarely are those people the ones that are coming down here for Mm -hmm. jury service. And so it's a very limited pool. And because I've got that 10,000-mile view now as a department head, Every juror is getting $40 when they come down for the jury service. Well, you write a check from the county budget for 12,000 jurors at 40 bucks a day, there, there does get to be a, an efficiency that the courts can't actually exceed. And about 1 to 1, 1.5% has been a nationwide average. And uh, so it makes people like Donna say, all right, Brett, um, you're the boss. Do you want me to try this murder today, or do you want me to try this aggravated sexual assault where this kid was forcibly raped and sodomized, but I only have one jury? Right. Man, that's a tough call. That's a tough call. Well, the other thing that we want to do is um, when we do try these cases and we see what kind of results our jurors are giving us, that informs our plea bargain offers. So we're not just you know, picking these numbers out of thin air. It's based on what do we see happening with these cases, um, what is it like that we have already tried, and that's informing our decision about what offers to make. And, you know, if somebody wants to plead to 30 years on an aggravated sexual assault of a child and that avoids us having to put the child through it, the family is good with it, you know, that's a win, uh, waiving their right to appeal. And I would gather part of your plea bargain process is, at times, and sometimes you can't, but I gather at times is communication with the victim's family and those things on what they're willing to accept, not accept, especially when we're dealing with murder-type cases, right? That's one of the first conversations that we want to have with them, right, is uh, to help them understand that we want to take into consideration their feelings and their thoughts on what should happen in the case. Ultimately, it's up to our office, um, but certainly there are situations where, for, for whatever reason, the family may not want to, to proceed with trial. Incest is one of the harder ones, and, and I know you know, I know that the show's being broadcast right around lunch, but we're, we're talking about some heavy topics here. And so stranger danger is something that everybody knows about, but unfortunately a lot of our sexual assault cases involve a family relationship. Now imagine the state of Texas picking up these charges, and if you have a child and, and she's a minor, and it's almost always a female, and they're almost always minors, and she's 8, 9, 10, somewhere in that range, and she's bouncing between homes, and you have a set of parents that aren't cooperative. If you have a mother or a grandmother, and, right. and I know in your, you know, you're sitting there shaking your head because this is the other side of it. Y'all know while you investigate it, it's going to be tough. And as prosecutors, we have no doubt we've got enough physical evidence, but we're going to need the child to come in and testify. But I have a mother or a grandmother who's not supportive of the child because if daddy goes to prison, right? right. Now all of a sudden yeah. that cuts off the economic uh, resources or if uh, the offender turns out to be the older uncle or the older grandpa. And then that sympathy starts to come into play with the family of, oh my gosh, it was just a touching on the outside of the clothes. Mm -hmm. Or it was digital penetration. It wasn't, you know, I'll leave all the other alternatives out there. And so then you start dealing with who's going to support this child. Because when the case is over with, 
we can provide some very, very, very small financial resources for hotel, for travel, for meals during the pendency of the case. But then the district attorney's office and the police department is going to have to move on. Mm -hmm. And so I would say when the public sees a negotiated plea of eight years or 10 years, know that it it bothers us as much, but sometimes uh, that's all that you can get and still be able to have support for this child in this home or what have you. Because the easiest thing in the world would be to go scorched earth. I think every pedophile probably ought to rot on the lowest sure. level of hell uh, for the rest of You eternity. watch all the Facebook comments. They'll give you suggestions on what should happen to them and, and everything right. else. Yes. Right. But, you know, and we brought up a couple of times, you know, uh, crimes against children. Let's put mm-hmm. it as a whole of crimes against children. And uh, the I know that it's been a passion of yours. It's something you address, and, and rightfully so, because uh, you address things that are of urgency and of big impact to the county. And what a lot of people don't realize, uh, unless you've worked in those areas, is that uh, there are more crimes against children that happen every day than violent crimes against adults. I mean, nearly threefold, but you don't hear about them. And, and you just brought a point on why you don't hear about them, because a majority of the people doing them are family members, are close to them, and therefore, if, if we were to broadcast, hey, you know, Bob Smith uh, got charged, got this or whatever, well, you know exactly who the victim was. And so we, we don't put that out, even though it's something that uh, we're working on a regular basis, and, and obviously all of us at, at my department, your department, focus our energy on protecting the children and such. Uh, I, don't, I don't know a way to, to change that, make that go away. I mean, there's not a billboard up there uh, to not do this to your child, right? I mean, that's either you... You know that or you don't know that. I, I don't know a, a way to stop uh, that other than removing them from society. It's one of those cases, um, and once again, I know we're talking about tough subjects, but you can understand and you can wrap your brain around two grown men getting into a bar fight, right? And one punches another, the person hits her head on the bar, and it unfortunately results in a fatality. However, you can see yourself as a person having been in that bar, or having been in a physical fist fight or whatever, and the consequences stemming from it, it was an intentional punch. Perhaps the fatality was, was, uh, was uncalled for. Or you can see two grown men, siblings, you know, pulling guns on each other because of the, the intoxication and that type of stuff. And so those types of things that even as a, an adult you can kind of see happened. But the one thing that I always tell people is you can't accidentally, you can accident your way into a lot of crimes, you can't right. accidentally put your penis in an infant. Right. And yeah. by God, when that happens, um, and unfortunately it happens quite a bit, um, those type of crimes and those types of defendants, and so when we get back to our plea bargaining, right, you may never know that I had Donna plea bargain a uh, injury to a child at a probation because on the day of trial, the only way I could get to the aggravated sexual assault of a child case was the other guy's in custody and one's on bond. Well, the guy in custody gets a priority by law as to which case will be tried first. And so if I have a guy on a smaller charge, a third degree or or a fourth degree state jail felony, and they're in custody, and Donna really wants to reach the guy who's on bond, right? Then Donna may be offering something that the general public never sees, but she's doing the greater thing for the community. To get to the case she needs to get to. To get to the case she needs to get to. And so there's that's why I'm always hesitant to comment on a negotiated plea in another jurisdiction because I never know what's going on. Donna, you want to talk about the difficulty in prosecuting those cases? Well, sure. So one of the things that uh, that doesn't make a case better is time passing. Right. right. Um, the longer that a the victim has to wait for their day in court, um, that's difficult. That has an emotional tax. Um, typically, your witnesses' memories don't get better. Right. right? Um, evidence can go missing, or police officers can move, or be unavailable, or witnesses become unavailable. Right. The older a case gets, generally speaking, it doesn't get better. And so, it's in our interest to try to make sure that we get these serious crimes to trial just as quickly as justice allows, so that we can make sure that the right thing happens. You know, and docket management just is part of what we trust our district court chiefs to do: is to make those tough calls when you've got a, you know, nine, ten, twelve cases set for trial on a Monday morning, and you have an option about which one of those you're going to go to trial on following the district court rules. And we want to make sure that we're making the right call about which one we're going to trial on. So now the the ultimate plea bargain that uh, I would say is made is when we have a death penalty case and we end up going for a, a life without parole and they jump on that instead of execution. But, you know, as, as it's 
all over in, in Texas how proud we are of the death penalty, how often we use the death penalty. It's not exactly that easy uh, to, to, to go to a death penalty case. It's not something that uh, any of us uh, take lightly, and it's certainly not something the courts take lightly. Uh, so uh, for the general public listener who doesn't know this, uh, just because we have a capital murder, which is the only you know state Texas crime that, that someone could be executed for, um, there are processes afterwards that you have to do to get the death penalty or, or even, I guess, approach the death penalty would be a way to say that. So uh, I know that y'all have both been involved in many cases in which y'all have had to go through those, those struggles and difficulties of deciding to do that and what you had to do. Uh, so if y'all could talk about actually the process of what you need to do on a death penalty case. Yeah, uh, one of the reasons I want to bring Donna is the one of the more higher profile capital murder cases that Donna and I had the opportunity to work on together, along with the bureau chief, Kelly Blackburn, uh, was the um, killing of Deputy Darren Goforth. Deputy Goforth was a Harris County Sheriff's deputy that was leaving a convenience store walking to his patrol vehicle uh, Deputy Goforth is in full uniform driving a marked vehicle. A uh, man by the name of Shannon Miles walks up behind him, pulls a pistol. There's no interaction between the two. Goforth never actually sees Shannon Miles walk up behind him. Shannon Miles uh, begins to shoot him in the head until uh, Deputy Goforth hits the ground and then he continues to discharge his weapon. It was uh, probably the most brutal 20 seconds, 27 seconds uh, that you could ever see. And on a recusal, the Harris County District Attorney's Office stepped aside, and um, I was brought in by the district court there to review that case under a capital murder or under a, a murder theory. And then Don and I worked on that case for several months along with Kelly Blackburn. You want to talk about, whew, man, that was a, you want to talk about that case a little sure. bit? Sure. So there were a lot of boxes of evidence. Yeah. There was a lot of recordings. Or, I mean, the Sheriff's Office in Harris County had, had done a lot to investigate that case. Um, so we got familiar with it. And then one of the things that Brett does, um, which I think is a great process, is that we have a, a basically a capital review um, process where um, everybody gets familiar with the case. Um, we um, generate documents that contain kind of the pros and cons for um, if we were to seek the death penalty, right? What do we have that supports that, um, the findings that have to be made versus um, an argument for life without parole being the right result in that particular case. We roundtable it. We've got bureau chiefs, division chiefs, um, trusted you know members of the Montgomery County District Attorney's Office that everybody meets. And then um, a lot of times we'll have a, a voice or two in that room that is um, we call be... it the yeah call it the devil's advocate actually. Right. right. The devil's advocate is a role that I appoint. We always request the defense attorney to come in and make a compelling case. Now this is during the process of the investigation, but before I make the final decision. Uh, whether or not we're going to seek the death penalty. And the devil's advocate's role is to come in and advocate on behalf of the defense to make sure that you're not in your own echo chamber, right? There are considerations oftentimes that are outside a prosecutor's natural uh, grasp of the physical facts. Um, sometimes there are appellate issues. Sometimes there are mental health issues. Um, and so we've always asked the defense attorneys to bring forth a mitigating case. Sometimes they cooperate. Sometimes they don't. I, I think there's perhaps... Early on, there was a little bit of mistrust that we'd be reading their cards early right. and then working our case around it. But without them knowing it, there would always be somebody at that table, and only I know who that devil's advocate is. And that advocate's job is to bring forth the most compelling case that makes us recognize and either defeat the mitigation or the defeat one of the three special issues that the jury has to come back and answer yes to at trial before you can actually have a uh, death penalty uh, pronunciation from a jury. And so Donna was involved with that one, uh, the defense attorney in that particular case. It was uh, Anthony Oso, I believe, wasn't right. it? Okay. And so we had him come in. Um, and in that case, without getting bogged down by the details, but there was a lot of mental health history. Um, there were issues with the defendant um, that we needed to take into consideration, not only as mitigation, but just from the perspective of will we ever actually successfully um, execute a death sentence were we to get one. Right. Um, and so those were all things that we wanted to take into consideration. We met with um, the defense attorney for hours, um, and then we all kind of processed the information that we had, and ultimately um, it was you know Brett's decision about how we were going to proceed, and we went with the life without parole um, option on that case. And spoken with the, um, uh, the wife, 
and out of respect for her, she has is trying to, she was probably more aware than any other uh, victim's family that I'd ever dealt with. She was triple degreed, had a high-end understanding of not only what the criminal justice process would be, but also had done quite a bit of external research on what her life would look like under one of two realities. Uh, if we chose to go forth with the death penalty, how involved would her family be in, the, um, in attempting to execute uh, Shannon Miles? Or what would her reality be had we, um, had we gone the other way? And due to that nature of that relationship, it, uh, it, she was so on point with the conversations that we would have. And I won't discuss what her thoughts were right. one way or the other because I, I respect her so much. But I remember, I mean, I'm... Yeah, uh, we're we're pretty jaded, I guess is the right word. Sure. You know, we all use a little macabre humor to get through things like that. And um, she had such an insight as to how she wanted the case to go, where she where she saw herself, where she saw her family. So listened heavily, and she knew right off the bat also that the ultimate decision would be mine. But I'd I'd like to hear from her. We spoke with the detectives, the deputies. The physical evidence was overwhelming of the guilt or innocence. And so, but most capital murder cases, the physical evidence is overwhelming on guilt or innocence. And really for the capital murder cases and probably the ones that you've uh, investigated, the ultimate issue is on the punishment side. Is the jury gonna come back in the affirmative with the, the three special issues? The number one being future dangerousness, right? Um, we had a, another fairly famous one where the, uh, the nurse kills uh, Kayla Shukart. Right. And a uh, baby was, uh, you, were you there? With yeah, this I on worked that? that. That was me and John. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there were two different scenes. There was a shooting scene and we then there the was the, then the apartment. So I was on the apartment scene um, and I was on the apartment scene and then Kelly and, and uh, Sherry Culberson were on the shooting scene and it was just a massive outpouring. And on that one, uh, Vernon McLean, who was the killer of Kayla Shukart, had no prior criminal history. No, that, that was a hard one trying to figure out as far as a future danger for her and yes. us looking into that. Yeah. And, uh, man, we sent people to Germany. Uh, she was from a military family. Um, she was willing to accept responsibility. She was also willing to do um, similar to an allocution, which is a true statement of what was going on in her mind and that was important uh, for the family of, of Kayla Shukart to know what was going on. And um, Verna McLean had indicated to her boyfriend, who was a fair-skinned black male, that she was pregnant. And so she was looking for a child to kidnap, whether either a Caucasian, Hispanic, or a fair-skinned African-American family because she wanted to pass the baby off as her own. The chilling part of that that people fail to realize is, um, is the fact what was going to happen when it became clear that that child was a Caucasian. Right. She, she'd been lying on both sides. You have, Absolutely. You have her, her sister, who she'd been telling for the past two weeks she's going to foster a child uh, and bring home from life. So she's leaving every day, obviously, in our right. search for a victim. And, uh, but her sister's under the belief she's going to bring a foster child home. She's told uh, her boyfriend that she's had the child and that uh, at some point they're going to meet, that they're right. going to talk. She right? started, had started wearing baggy clothes, and so she, wasn't, she didn't target Kayla Shukart. Kayla Shukart, unfortunately, and you hear it so many times in history, was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, Verna had uh, familiarity with that uh, pediatrician's office, right. and so all those things that y'all investigated uh, led, led her led us to the conclusion that she was doing it merely to survive in a relationship. Yeah, she's just a con artist. She, she would use men, and she we had proven continuous lies where she would say she was pregnant, use them to pay her cars, pay her mortgage, pay whatever, and then later, oh, I had a miscarriage. And she had done this numerous times, as we had found uh, through, again, going to California and other places she had done this. So this was her pattern. And in this particular instance, uh, she had stated the child was born. And now she needed to find a She child. had to do something. The, if I recall, the defendant's boyfriend's mother is who she was mainly trying to convince. The boyfriend kind of was perhaps a little naive to it all or wanted to believe what he wanted to, but it was his mother that was the true skeptic and did not believe any of it. And so I think it was one of these, 
I now have to have a real baby because the guys might be a little bit. <laughs> right. You know, we're guys. We, we, we'll believe a whole lot. Well, and obviously not even close enough to be there for the birth, right? Here, here's right. a picture of your child, right? Right, here's so. a picture of the baby, right? I was in the hospital for a few days, but the putative mother in law was right. the true skeptic there. And so she felt like she had to have some type of uh, physical evidence. And there were, there were two things that haunted me um, with that case. And actually, we ultimately did uh, make the decision to seek the death penalty. Um, and it was the thought that Kayla Shukart, by the time Kayla Shukart died, Kayla did not know that within six hours we got the baby back. Right. Kayla didn't know that. And I always, it was always a haunting thought to me then, and it, and it will be for the rest of my life, that if somebody could breathe uh, a bit of life into Kayla, that the first words out of her mouth were, where's my baby? Where's my baby? Because she died not knowing. Correct. She died not knowing. And that always has haunted me that the only way that we could ever bring her a voice to that victim was to somehow answer that question for her um, and the family and those types of deals. And it was that motivation of, you know, here it should be probably one of the happiest days of your life. Now, you talk about a true narrative or a true arc. She's walking out of the pediatrician's office. The baby's healthy. The baby's finally starting to put yeah, on three, weight. Three days old. Three days old, right. The, the baby's putting on weight. The baby's healthy. She's a mom, right? Are there any more, is there any more of a, the birds are chirping in the background and, you know, all is right with the world. And next thing you know, um, but she did know that her child had been kidnapped. Right. And she knew that she had been shot. And that, those, that, it was that thought that bothered me perhaps the most of not knowing. And, and what's given me a tremendous amount of relief all those years later is, the community knows um, that the sheriff's department, it was a Montgomery County Sheriff's Department on the scene along with DPS and SWAT, um, that within six hours, Vernon McLean shows up back on the scene. Right. And I'm talking to a few detectives. Uh, there was an older captain back then by the name of Bruce Zener, uh, who I'd worked with for years also. And when she drives up, I turn to the captain and I say, well, this could be our killer right here. And I want to say it was uh, probably Paul Haas. Yeah, Paul was on that scene. John, yes. John and I were on the other. That yeah. pulls her to the side, and we're watching SWAT make uh, an explosive breach into the house because of, there was a vehicle that had blood on it, and uh, the hood was still warm. We're thinking, okay, perhaps this child is in here. They found the carrier. They found the phone with blood on it. So you're watching all this unravel fairly quickly. Um, it was just an incredible turnaround that out of the, the largest tragedy becomes the greatest story of you get this baby back in custody. But the, what, once again, one of those things that will always live with me is there's no doubt in my mind that the moment that, uh, the moment that anybody would have gotten wise to it, that Verna would have had to have killed that infant also. Yeah, without a doubt. That, that had to be her end plan. There was no other solution. There was no other solution. Um, and I, I think about that one quite a bit also. So now you talked about, so we, we had, we're able to determine she's going to be a future danger. So where do you have to take that now? You said there's a hearing or, or such to, to have the death penalty or to be, a, a, I don't know, allowed to? Well, that was our weakness in that particular case is that the best example of future danger, obviously, is, is past danger. Um, the argument that I was prepared to make to the jury was the fact that this is a, a dog that never barked. This is a dog that only bites. And anybody who knows the analogy I'm trying to make, a barking dog, you know to steer away from it. Somebody puffs up, somebody who says, I'll kill you all the time, or somebody's brandishing weapons, right? That They kind of let you know, this is a bad hombre, stay away from him. The insidious nature of Verna was that Verna was a killer, a kidnapper, and in mine and your assessment was that she was um, likely to kill again but then you have to prove to the jury, hey, and you're kind of standing there with a big box of nothing, perhaps, of, of what it is that you could prove future dangerousness with other than mere argument. So then you get to the concerns, the, uh, the appellate attorneys start weighing in quite heavily. And before we made that determination, the, um, the defense attorney, Steve Jackson, had, had come forth and said, look, she's willing to accept responsibility. She'll do so immediately. And she will do a full allocution. We spoke with the family. Uh, and the family had made that decision was they wanted this infant to live as normal a life as possible without all the appeals and without all, all those types of deals. And so even though I had, we'd gone to court, we had made the formal um, pronunciation that we were going to seek death, we had already started to assemble our team in, re in regards to that, and it was right soon thereafter 
that the offer was made to us that she would accept life without parole, which in Texas, an LWAP or a true life without parole is you're as dead as Larry Swearingen. Um, you're going to die in prison. You're going to die. You're going to be uh, planted in an unmarked grave, a pauper's grave, or your body will be turned over to, uh, to science. <laughs> There's a very specific way that they handle that. Um, and as far as I was concerned, that type of anonymity where you're not a rock star on death penalty, on death row, right. um, is, is as good as, as any other type of fatality. And, and I've had a good rapport with a lot of the families of these capital murders. And I tell them, you know, trust me, I will, this person will never breathe a, a breath of free, uh, free air for the rest of their, their lives. And I'll either kill them short or I'll kill them slow, but they're dead as far as you're concerned. Now, how we go about it, um, you know, sometimes that dictates what their past is and what the defendant's history is and, and how uh, provocative the actual crime itself is. As, as you know, there's special circumstances to even consider whether somebody's uh, eligible for the death penalty. Uh, and we knew with Verna if it ever got to the point of, uh, of her fleeing, if we were going to seek it, then uh, she would jump on life without parole. In our second interview with her, uh, she kept telling John I, over and over, I don't want people to think I'm a monster and I don't want to die. Those were her things over and over. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. So we knew if it ever came up, then, then she would jump on that opportunity. Um, and, and I agree, as, as you've spoken, two cases is a consideration with the family. We know that the death penalty does not happen quickly. There, there's appeal after appeal, and, and I think you know, average is like 10 years, but it's usually much longer than that, that the, that the family is waiting on like the next appeal, the next appeal, and it's instead of moving on with life, and that's certainly something they have to consider. You know, and, and you briefly had mentioned uh, Melissa Trotter's murder that was just uh, executed, uh, and that happened before you came to office. 1998 was when the murder was. And I know it was very important to you uh, to make sure, as all of us do, I don't know a single prosecutor or a cop that wants anybody innocent to go to jail for anything, more or less a death penalty. And we, we work just as hard to prove people innocent as, as we do guilty. Um, but you went through a lot of steps uh, to make sure that everything had been covered with that under your watch. And I know that uh, since the execution, on the execution, that there were still arguments uh, that have come up, uh, uh, cell phone and time in jail, and all those things you had addressed. Uh, and I guess I, I spoke to Kelly Blackburn, who was um, you know, instrumental in that case and working on that case. Um, you know, what exactly, as far as the end thing, I guess, to, to say on that, that uh, y'all made sure Everything was done. Uh, I think the most recent was DNA that you offered to pay for. You did pay Correct. for it, you know, to make sure there, there wasn't any loose things. And I think uh, one thing has come up that uh, Paul and I had talked about before. But Detective you, or Sergeant Haas, yes. Sheriff's Department Paul. Yeah. Okay. That uh, you possibly clarify. So on the pantyhose, right, mm -hmm. there's a new terminology that's being used in forensics, okay, and it's this without exclusion to others, mm -hmm. right? And this has been a topic that came up at the II for crime scene and such. And it's basically saying we haven't fingerprinted everybody in the world, right? And we haven't checked every single pantyhose that exists in the world. But it leads people to think there were other possibilities. Well, and when you compare the language that uh, DPS uses in 2019 with the language that DPS used in 2002, those two phrases are different. And so in... Um, in Melissa's case, it was a pair of pantyhose that were found tied around her neck, and we would refer to it as a ligature. Right. And so imagine a pair of your grandma's pantyhose. Now, not some silk stocking things, but or even the ankles. This is a pair of the regular pantyhose that, had the, that would have the waistband, the crotch, and then two legs. And so I, almost like a unitard or a leotard type. And so one of the legs had been cut off from there. Well, why did that matter? Because... The other part of the pantyhose were found in a garbage can, and you and I are referencing it, but there might be people who are listening in. And the DPS lab looked at the cut marks. They were able to stretch it out. And back then, they said it was a match. Right. In 2019, when uh, the head of the DPS said, well, that's not the language we would use now. We would say uh, it was a robust or a vibrant. Uh, I'm trying to remember the exact language that they used, but they changed the, the verbiage of it. Now, luckily, the courts were aware of this. So some of these arguments that were made on behalf of Mr. Swearingen were arguments that would play well in the public. However, they did not play well in the court. They did not play well before a jury. 
They did not play well before the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. And more importantly, they did not play well in front of the Federal Fifth Circuit or the United States Supreme Court. Those courts, with defiance, shot down those arguments, and it indicated that the, on behalf of the defendant that the appeals were either intentionally misquoted or misrepresented because there had been no change in the quality of the evidence. And in fact, as the things you and I talked about, we enhanced, we continued to add to it and add to it, mainly for argument's sake at that point. Um, one of the particular issues is in the last appeal, uh, two or three years ago, they had made an argument about DNA. And I said, fine, I'll test it. Tell me what you want tested. I'll pay for it and I'll have it expedited and we'll have it returned in 11 days. So it was the Innocence Project on behalf of Larry Swearingen, they went to the court. It was a district court judge that didn't even uh, finish out an entire term. Right. I only did three years of a four-year term. That district court judge prevented me, even though it was the suggestion of the Innocence Project that we test it, I agreed to it, said I'd pay for it, said we'd extra he expedite it, because I'd have it back before the execution date. So then they go get an order from the court that actually prevented me from accessing the state's uh, evidence and testing it. And it wasn't until that uh, district court judge was no longer on the bench, another judge comes in, he recuses himself, it goes to an independent judge, that judge says, well, of course, that evidence ought to be. Now, at that point, the Innocence Project and I came up to a very honorable agreement that we would test the evidence, even though at that point I didn't have to because the appeal had been overruled already, I still agreed to it, um, and the Innocence Project agreed to pay. So, of course, it comes back. The only DNA that was out there was the DNA on the cigarette butts that was found nearby. And then they wanted to test the hair strands from the ligature that was found tied around Melissa's neck. And I said, fine, no problem. And then when that uh, didn't reveal uh, anything that would be helpful to them, then they asked to go to one more lab that could test, was it dyed hair color? There was one lab that had taught the FBI uh, hair strand analysis. And so they're the ones that the FBI turns to. And they said, well, we'd like them to review these hair strands. And we said, knock your lights out. This is Melissa's hair. I have no concern uh, for this. We kept saying, tell me what it is you want tested. Right. We'll test it. Yeah, but we'll, what do you think is going to make them innocent? We'll, we'll test whatever, whatever you, you want to test. So whatever your date with destiny is. It, so for me as the, as the prosecutor who would rather be sure versus be hurried, because the appeals had lost, lasted so much more time, and you're, you're juggling the community's interests with the family's interests, right. but also the fact that it had taken so much time, for me, it didn't matter if it was going to be another six months or another nine months in the sense that surely the, the opponents um, of this particular case, and I understand there's a fundamental disagreement with people being executed, Sure. Right. And, I, and, and I will never be able to win that debate, nor would I choose to debate somebody over the merits of the death penalty. I was trying to convince people in this particular case, regardless if you like the sentence imposed. Is he guilty or innocent? Is he guilty or innocent? Right. Because we weren't arguing future dangerousness. And what a lot of people have forgotten is uh, Larry Swearingen's extensive criminal history dealing with sex offenses beforehand. They had forgotten about all of his victims. Uh, Texas Monthly and a few other media sources continue to say there's no uh, biological evidence, although you have a confession from Larry Swearingen. Right. You have him confessing, and then that confession coming into evidence, now it's to another inmate within there. And so when you look at all the cooperative evidence on top of his confession, uh, you know, anybody who's who had anything to do with that case, it's, an, it's a walk-off home run for guilt or innocence. And all we did was continue to add modern-day forensics to it just to verify that what they had seen before is was still consistent with what they saw in 2019. Uh, Donna, so for you, with being now the felony division chief and I just us just ending legislature, so we got new, new law changes and everything, so anything new that you're going to be facing, any new challenges that with the new laws that are happening? Um, well, I think it probably plays out more in misdemeanor court, but okay. some of the hemp, THC, right, yeah, um, marijuana that, that, issues are... Um, yeah, we could do a whole episode <laughs> just yeah, on we, that. we could talk could all we? about no. forever, but the, the quick summary for, for those listening nationally or whatever, that uh, we had passed a law without, I guess, realizing that our DPS offices or labs were capable of determining the percentage, and we put in the law uh, a percentage that needed to be met, right? Right. 
Right. So. And so I, I know that we've got some samples off that uh, I don't, I'm not sure our testing's been completed yet. It, it has. Okay. Every single one of them tested positive for marijuana. Okay. So, so. you know, Donna kind of ruined, ruined that. But uh, so the new law is if it's above 0.3, it's marijuana, right? right? And so, of course, we got samples from all the smoke shops in Montgomery County, including the prepackaged cigarettes that say zero THC. Uh, let me see, the buds, uh, the pre-rolls, uh, the gummies. Mm -hmm. And so we sent them off to a private lab to have them tested. And they all tested above 0.3%. So so out of, out of that that y'all sent off, I'm just curious because we got these CBD things mm -hmm. popping up, right? Was any Correct. of that included in, in what so you're currently seeing? So we didn't test, uh, and here's a distinction, uh, and people always ask me about the CBD gummies, including my mom. Mom, if you're listening, <laughs> I still don't think that you Don't are, eat the gummies. Don't eat the gummies. <laughs> I still don't think that you should, uh, and I, I, we're getting the sign here, but if, uh, the, if the CBD is derived from THC, it's always going to be unlawful. If the CBD is derived from hemp, it's lawful. But as an aside, I tell people, but if it's only derived from hemp, there's no kick to it, right? Mm -hmm. There's no right. value to it, yeah. and you're just wasting your money. And if you're trying to get a high off of it, if it actually has a medicinal effect, it's likely from the THC, which is, which is unlawful. And that's, mm -hmm. that's how that story ends. <clears throat> well, and wrapping up, and we just have one minute left, and I thank you all both for coming and talking about these topics. I know they're important to us. They're important to the community and questions they have. Uh, so real quick, as far as wrapping up for you, Brett, uh, you made the comment in your first 10 years, you've changed in the fact of you being, you have to change with things that are facing. Uh, what are some things that are currently on your agenda to, uh, that you're facing at the district attorney's office right now? So I think the uh, proliferation of the way that people use the internet and the way that they continue to use computers. Uh, traditional law enforcement recruits and retrains for a patrol officer. And we still need patrol officers. We still need people that can wrestle with a guy on Saturday nights. But I think as you're seeing society evolve, you're seeing so many more of these crimes committed within the four walls of people's homes, uh, whether fraudulent crimes, crimes against children, child pornography. And so I think that the real, the real um, struggle for law enforcement or our challenge over the next decade is going to be how do we match 2019 criminals with 2019 law enforcement technology? Thank you all so much for coming out. And if there's any topic that you'd like to hear in the future, contact me, dan, at crimescenetoday.com. Thank you. our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in spring or online at planetford.com.